In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pawn Order. Peter Sankoff here coming to you from Edmonton, Alberta. And I'm here not live this time, but with my wonderful co-host, Camille Lapchuk. Hi, everyone. And I, as usual, am in Ottawa. It's good to be here. Peter, what's up? Oh, my God, there's a lot going on. And Camille, before we talk about what's going on with us, I, I haven't even told you about this, but I, I feel in light of what we're going to be talking about today, we need to we need to put something out to our listeners. We need some help because every once in a while, the news about animals in the law, there's always news about animals in the law, but every once in a while, the news is particularly fulsome. And we decide to have an episode like we're going to have today, which is essentially just animal law news. Do you follow me? Yeah, that's right. There's just so much going on. We're trying to do the news section for this show, and we thought maybe we'd have a main topic, too. And we're just like, oh, my God, it's overwhelming. There's like 80 stories that we have to discuss. Not really 80, but close. Yeah, and and we're not lazy because we actually did have a couple of topics we wanted to go through, like special topics. Um, so we actually do have those. We're prepared. We have some researchers we're going to talk about in just a moment. But there is just so much that is worth talking about that we don't want to get into anything else. We just want to let the stories tell themselves because there's a lot that we want to comment on these stories. And what I feel like, Camille, is that episodes like this kind of need a special name. And I feel like we should put it out to our listeners to help us. Like, what do we call it when we just do the news? They're just, I, I couldn't come up with anything, but there needs to be something that sort of, it's a blank episode. It's like a, you know what I mean? Like a yeah, news coverage episode. Because usually we say like, oh, episode 24, pet custody, episode 30, whales and dolphins. But we do need Correct. kind of like an evergreen name for these kinds of episodes. So listeners, if you have any ideas, let us know. Drop us an email, tweet yeah. us. Yeah, exactly. It's not a newsy episode or a animal on the news. It's too boring. I, I, I feel like, you know, consistent with our, you know, like our the name of our podcast is Pawn Order. There needs to be something that sort of symbolizes a news-filled episode. So we're putting it out to all our listeners to help us out uh, and come up with an appropriate title for this kind of episode. Because frankly, I'm pretty excited. We have we have like 12 different stories that we want to cover today because um, there's just been so much going on. So that's really uh, what's going on with us. Now, now I know, Camille, there's actually more going on with us than just that. Why don't you tell us a little bit what's been happening since I last saw you in Yellowknife. I oh. woke up at four, four in the morning to head off from Yellowknife and didn't, haven't seen you since. No. Well, I came back from Yellowknife and since then I've just been, I don't know, have I been doing anything? I guess I have been <laughs> just working, I suppose. Um, what's new? I went to a new vegan place. Well, actually it's not a vegan place. It's a Berlin street food place in Ottawa called Wolf Down. And they have a tofu doner skewer, you know, you must have seen those on the street, Peter. There's like layers of meat, like chicken or, or cow meat or whatever, just on this big skewer rotating around on the spit. They have one of those, except it's for tofu. So I went there yesterday and that was pretty awesome. 
Wow, that is pretty awesome. I, I don't know, Camille, because in my show notes, I have Camille going to Europe, and here you are telling me about tofu. <laughs> I mean, I'm <laughs> well, excited I'm not to in hear Europe about yet. tofu, but... So that's when right. When are you going to Europe, Camille? Tell me about that. As soon that as we finish more, recording, more interesting. As soon as we finish recording this episode, I'm off to the airport. I'm heading first to Zurich, where I'm going to see lots of friends who work for the Tier Imrecht, the uh, Swiss animal law organization. And then I'm going to a conference in Milan about uh, human rights protections for people who are vegan and more generally ways that veganism and the law interact. So whether it's discriminatory product rules and, you know, things like not being able to call soy milk milk or almond milk milk or vegan cheese cheese. So we're going to discuss all these issues at the conference and I'm hopefully going to have lots of fun insights to share with everyone in the next episode. Fantastic. I'm also going to Europe, but I'll save that because I think we have like at least two episodes before I'm going to Europe. So I will not be overlapping with Camille in Europe, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about that, too. Uh, what's new with you? Lots going on. Oh, my God. Um, I'm very busy with some cases. As I said, I have some animal law cases. I'm just not allowed to talk about them. That's the bummer of being like a representative because I'm sort of retained. I'm retained on the side. I'm not representing the client. I'm advising them with respect to some complex animal law matters. So I can't talk about that. Um, I have been, there's been some cool stuff going on. You, you talked about tofu. Let me tell you about vegan donuts very briefly. Edmonton, I want to do a shout out to uh, hopefully a sponsor down the road, but honestly, just a wonderful place called Donut Party uh, in Edmonton, which you haven't been to yet, Camille, but I'm hoping you will uh, visit on your next visit to Edmonton, which is not that far off, actually. Don't want to you know, foreshadow another pawn order in person. But I think it's around October you're coming out here. I think so. And I'm always up for vegan donuts. Yeah, they're very good. So I wanted to throw that out. I wanted to throw out that I am working hard on my animals and the law materials, which is not very exciting uh, for listeners, but it's pretty exciting for me because I didn't teach the course last year. So I'm working hard to revamp uh, my materials. And frankly, it's just, it's getting hard because there's <laughs> there's so many things I want to include. And I feel like the course book is expanding. So that's always worrisome for me, but that's been fun. I'm working with my uh, student, Missy, who is one of my summer students, and she is uh, also taking the course next year. So that's great. Did that. And uh, what else is going on very quickly? I wanted to do a shout out to my friend, uh, our friend, I guess a friend of the podcast, kind of, although she hasn't been on the podcast, but uh, our friend Mandy McLeod, who is my co-coach, um, both at the Gale Cup and the Commonwealth Law Moot, which many of you have heard a lot about in past uh, months. But I wanted to do a shout out to Mandy because she did a TED talk recently at the University of Alberta, and it is about um, making the link between domestic violence and pet violence. And it's a really, really uh, great TED talk that sort of, because she's a prosecutor and she deals with these cases. So I highly recommend her TED talk. We're going to link to it in the show notes. Uh, but I wanted to do a shout out to uh, Mandy. Have you had a chance to look at it yet, Camille? I did send you the link. Yeah, no, I haven't yet, but I, I look forward to it. Mandy, is pretty awesome and a great speaker. So that's really cool. And while we're doing shout outs, I think I mentioned this a little bit last week, but I want to say just welcome a couple, a few people to the animal justice team this summer. So we've got three summer students joining us. Uh, really exciting. We've got Adder Roberts from the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, Emily Wilson from UBC, and Gabriel Wilgen, who's studying at Harvard. And so these three are doing just awesome, exciting projects for us uh, all summer long. And I'm really excited to have all you guys. 
I believe one of the things they're doing for us, Camille, if you've tasked them with it, because I have sent it to you a while ago, is to research some Pawn Order episodes. Are they on that yet, Camille? Cause, yeah, you know, that's right. There's some research going on. So hopefully Good, we'll have some, some exciting content for everyone soon. And, uh, you know, also just keep in mind that listeners, if you have topics you want us to go over, we're always looking for ideas. So please do drop us a note, info at animaljustice.ca and let us know. Absolutely. Now, I did have one last note I wanted to throw out there because I, I'm just bantering. It's all about me, Camille, and, you know, things that have happened to me. I, I wanted to do one last mini shout out because I always, the animal law world is an interesting place. Um, I've been doing this now for almost 20 years, which is frightening to me. But um, when I started in 2001 and I was reaching out to contact people working in animal law, it was really it was really just the ALDF that were really the only people who were working on this um, that I could find online. Um, and it was really, it was really a very, very small world. And, and I was excited um, every time I heard from somebody. And now we know the community is much bigger than that now. I mean, we're going out to Dalhousie in October for a conference and we're just going to be surrounded by people working in animal law from, you know, Canada and around the world. But, but I did want to, uh, I'm still excited when we hear from someone new and I really, recently got an email from the University of Antwerp in Belgium and they were excited to reach out to me because a former student of mine is doing a PhD there and they have set up a new animal law chair and I think that's really exciting stuff because chairs in universities are still pretty rare. I mean it is really rare to essentially have a professor who's going to be engaged in research and part of the terms of the chair is that they have to supervise one PhD um, in animal law. So I mean to me that's really exciting stuff. So I give some kudos to uh, the University of Antwerp in Belgium for that really cool, um, you know, that really cool decision to to launch. And thanks for getting in touch. I look forward to uh, hopefully visiting Antwerp in the near future. Wow. Way to go, Belgium and Antwerp. That's awesome. Cool. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? While they have an animal. We, we're not even talking about the Belgium story. That's not on our list today, Camille. All right, is it? Can we somehow squeeze it in? Uh, I think we spoke about the Belgium story, if it's the one I'm thinking of in the past. But there, there were some efforts there to enshrine oh, animal yeah, the sentience. Belgium doctors. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 I'm talking that's... about Belgian doctors. Yeah, we haven't talked about Belgian doctors. It's been a little bit on Twitter. We can leave Belgian doctors. I just, I'm worried, Camille, if I visit Antwerp, I might be prosecuted for raising my two kids as vegans. Well, so now we have to talk about it. I might have to it. go there. Now we have to tell <laughs> might, people what we're talking about, Peter. <laughs> I might have to go there without my kids. Because Belgian doctors are worried that if you raise your kids vegan, you're going to kill them. That's essentially what they're worried about. Yeah, they're actually pretty much calling for people who have vegan children to be prosecuted. It's kind of disturbing and really not um, not something based in the evidence at all, because veganism is one of the healthiest diets for children. It's, it's not based in evidence, nor is it. It's based on a few stories where, you know, some really really unsound vegan parents who didn't feed their kids properly, um, essentially, but no differently, if you think about it, than unsound any parent who feeds their kids improperly or malnourishes them. That's a real problem. Um, you know, as the parent of two vegan kids, I find the idea that the kids are unhealthy or somehow secretly unhealthy just laughable and frankly conflicts with all the evidence from most major you know, medical groups in the world. The Belgian doctors are the ones sitting out there going, no, 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 we're going to ignore all that evidence and say it's unhealthy to raise your kids vegan. Yeah, you just got to wonder how that policy got passed and who's behind that. It's certainly suspicious to me. 
Me too. Anyway, okay, we've talked enough about Belgian doctors. I wanted to give them a big fat zero, but I guess it wasn't uh, it wasn't newsworthy or current enough to do so. So we'll leave them. I'm sure they'll come back when they enact the law, Camille, and then we can, you know, or, or discuss the law in Parliament and then, or whatever it is in Belgium, and then we can, you know, discuss it in more detail. Now, before we get into our main topic, which is in the news, we should give out a couple of other shout outs. I noticed, Camille, I was very excited to notice that we have a new Patreon. I don't have a name, but we do have a new new patreon uh is that what we call them patreon patron we have a new patron oh a new patron on patreon yeah yeah that's exciting and uh anyone else who's listening if you haven't already heard we do have a patreon account now for bra and order you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month to support the podcast support the work that we do and help us produce even more content and even better content uh, you can pledge a dollar a month, five dollars, really the sky is the limit. And we've got various rewards that you get at various different tiers. And all tiers come with our gratitude. We'd like to thank our Patreon uh, subscriber and we will when we have their name next next episode. Okay. And I also, of course, want to thank our sponsor of this podcast, The Gritting Goat, Canada's vegan clothing store. They're an online clothing store. They also have an in-person location on 17th Avenue Southwest in Calgary. I'm actually going to Calgary next month, Peter, to speak at Calgary VegFest. And I can't wait to stop by because I always walk away with a ton of new stuff from footwear to clothing to uh, body products. They have it all. So check them out. Uh, thegrinninggoat.ca. If you use the checkout code PAW15, you'll get 15% off your purchase and they ship Canada-wide. Now, more importantly, Camille, how dare you visit my province and not let me know that you're coming? What is going on with you? I, you you definitely knew that I was going to Calgary Fetch Fest, Peter. I had, I had absolutely no idea. When are you going to Calgary? Just out of curiosity, uh, when is Calgary Veg Fest? Calgary Veg Fest is June 15th. Oh, well, I can't come down there. That's too bad. I would have come. That's Penny's uh, birthday weekend. Oh. So my mom is in town. So oh. sadly, I cannot come to Calgary VedFest. I would have made that trip to, you know, catch up. We could have done a pawn order in person. God knows. But oh. yeah, unfortunately, that's not a good week for me. So I will have to let you enjoy Calgary VedFest alone. Well, say hello to everybody at the Grinning Goat for me. Please. I'll eat lots of food. Okay, so moving on to our main segment this week, which is in the news, all the animal law news that you want to hear about, we're going to discuss it. Oh my God, there has been so much. It is literally, I, I won't lie, Camille, you know, we should be upfront with our listeners. There are weeks where we're literally scrounging for some news, right? I mean, there's always stuff going on, but some, some podcasts are more plentiful than others. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. This one, there is and an this, abundance. This is like a bounty. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's just start with some updates on some of the federal legislation that's going through the House of Commons and the Senate right now. There's some good news, really good news, actually. So the bills that we've been tracking, Bill S203 to outlaw whale and dolphin captivity, that one has made some progress. It was debated recently. And the bill to ban shark finning products, it was also debated and it passed a good vote. Uh, but what we've been worried about is that these two bills are running out of time to pass through the House of Commons before the end of the legislative session. So what ended up happening, and we have to give huge kudos to the Liberal government for this one, is they showed up, the Liberal Senate leader, uh, his name is Peter Harder, Senator Harder showed up to the Fisheries Committee in the Senate, and they used a different bill, Bill C-68, a fisheries bill, to incorporate parts of the whale and dolphin ban and the entirety of the shark fin ban. So the significant 
significance of this, it's huge, Peter. The shark fin ban is very, very likely to pass through this session now. We almost have an assurance of that. It needs to go back to the House to be reapproved, but that should happen. And parts of the whale and dolphin ban are in there too. So really, really good news. Kudos to the Liberal government for doing this. We're still following Bill S203 because the, the bill in the House of Commons, now sponsored by Elizabeth May, it still needs to pass uh, to have all of the protections that whale and dolphins need. So that's good news. And where is that now, Camille? Where is that at? Well, C-68, the the big fisheries bill, it's still in the Senate, but it should be out soon. And then it has to go to the House for reapproval. And Bill S-203 is awaiting its final debate and vote. So Elizabeth May is actively looking for a way to get it moved up in the legislative calendar so that it will be reached before the end of the term. And uh, we're very hopeful that this is going to happen. There's a lot of support for this bill from all of the parties. So it's looking good, but please don't uh, be inactive. Please do remind your member of parliament that you want to see it pass. Always, always remind your member of parliament, you should be on the phone with them daily on these issues. Now, Camille, I want to say like, I was very confident, but you were worried last episode. If you go back and check the tape, you were worried about Bill C-84. Actually, I was worried too, but (laughs) you were worried about Bill C-84, but there's been some progress there as well, hasn't there? There has been. So Bill C-84, that's the anti-bestiality and anti-animal fighting bill. We testified on that bill. Obviously, we were, as, as listeners would know, we were involved in the court case that dealt with the whole issue of animal sexual abuse in the first place. So we've been really interested in making sure that this bill passes. And it looked like it was getting held up in the House of Commons and wouldn't have enough time to be debated and voted on in the Senate. But luckily, things got moving again. Uh, Members of Parliament did debate the bill and they did approve it. So the House has passed it and it's now over in the Senate. So it'll be before, I think, the Social uh, Affairs Committee of the Senate, Peter, is going to study it. And then there'll be a final vote. So that's good news. And I don't Fantastic. know, Peter, if you had a chance to listen to any of the speeches that were being given in I support did, of I Bill C-84. I I did. I did. And I wanted to give a shout out because, frankly, the chair of the the Justice Committee is Anthony Housefather, who I know we go way back together, as you might have heard from the uh, Commons uh, Committee. He's not only from my hometown, he's like literally from my home suburb of my hometown. And we went to school together because we're about the same age. So so I know Anthony. Uh, I don't know him well, but I, I, I grew up in this very small you know suburb and I, I knew him knew of him um and and i was very pleased to hear his speech because it's the kind of speech that i'm hoping will change the minds and will change the tone of the debate about animal cruelty issues because he made it very clear that bill 84 was just the beginning and he made it very clear that in his view we needed more animal cruelty protections and i think that was one of the key messages of the witnesses who testified at bill c84 so to have the chair of that committee come back and report to the house and remind the liberal government hopefully of the promise that it made to revamp the animal cruelty provisions of the code obviously not in this mandate but if somehow the liberals are reelected, um, hopefully to commit to making the real needed changes for animal abuse in our society. So I was very, very pleased and very proud of uh, Anthony Housefather for making those wonderful comments in the House. And you know what? Let's actually uh, ask our producers to pull that clip out and uh, just play it for listeners so they can hear exactly what he said, because they are some very powerful words. I think that this is something we can all agree to. Animal cruelty laws in Canada are something that need to be vastly improved. 
We have laws that were adopted in the 1890s, slightly amended in the 1950s, and they haven't been, unfortunately, radically revamped in the world we live in today, where we recognize, most of us, that animals should not be treated as pure property. Animals are sentient beings. Animals can suffer. Animals, most animals have the ability to know whether they're feeling pain or not. And today, our animal cruelty laws are, unfortunately, many, many years behind the times. I don't want to say we've never had powerful words like that before. And in, in, the, in, the, in the never-ending book that I'm probably never going to finish, I do comment that parliamentarians love falling all over themselves to say how much they love animals. You know what I mean? Like, it's if you go back historically, every one of them loves to get up and talk about their pet dog and how much they all love animals, and everybody loves animals. This was a little different. I will say, like, this, this, these comments were obviously more directed towards meaningful and concrete change. They weren't just about, oh, we love animals, we do everything for them. This was like, no, we're not doing enough, we need to change. And usually you don't hear those types of words um, um, from everybody in the House on a regular basis. And certainly, let me just say, like, uh, um, um, the, the chair of the Justice Committee didn't need to make those remarks with respect to Bill C-84, if you know what I mean. Like, this could have been an ordinary speech saying, we're, we've, we're patting ourselves on the back for combating bestiality, when really, the fact that the occasion was taken to campaign for bigger change, to me, is what makes it so significant. Yeah, totally. So thanks, Anthony Housefather, for those great words. And I'm just been in general, really, in general, Peter, I've been really inspired by how much positive will there is toward animal issues in this parliament. And it feels like a, a really good time to be going into an election and building on that. Yeah, it'll last uh, as long as, you know, the conservatives take the majority in the House in the next session, and then we can watch all that goodwill come crashing down. Ooh, we shall Sorry, see. Camille. We shall see. Oh, we'll see. There's members of Camille, all parties, Camille. Peter, who support animals. Just keep that in mind. The that is true, but fewer of them in the Conservative Party, let's put it that way. For every, I mean, we know that our good, it's, it's, it's not even time to say goodbye to our, our, our old friend of the podcast. He's not a friend, Bob Sopuck. But there are, as you know, Camille, there are some others who will fall right into Bob's place and, and be pleased to fighting against animals at every turn. Yeah. All right, Peter, another really big story, a huge story out of Montreal this week. So, big. yeah, a uh, huge story. So the Montreal SPCA has busted a zoo and charged the owner with criminal animal cruelty charges, not just criminal charges, but indictable cruelty charges. This is something that I don't believe has ever happened before. Um, certainly the first sort of exotic animal zoo that's ever been charged with criminal offenses. We are aware of maybe a petting zoo in British Columbia that likely faced charges at one point, but this is a big deal. Well, let's first break it down for our listeners who do not have a legal background about why this is so significant. So first of all, what's significant about this is that these were criminal charges. And let's just say that it is rare, quite frankly, for any commercial operator of any kind to ever be charged commercially. It just doesn't criminally. It just doesn't happen. It's almost um, unheard seen, of. Yeah, it, there, there have been a couple um there have been a couple, but but not very many. Like, it is very rare. When we see um, massive forms of abuse and we all get upset about them and charges get laid and everybody's like, oh, charges have been laid. Well, those charges are provincial charges. They're far less serious and they um, they don't get... For the, the punishments are not as severe. We have outlined on past episodes um, what some of the problems are with proceeding in that way. And one of them, of course, is that prohibition orders only apply provincially. So there's, like, all kinds of issues with that. 
The, the second point you raised, Camille, is that they're proceeding on indictment. That is quite a significant thing. I am personally unaware I, I'm not sure I can think of any case that proceeded on indictment. And, and what's interesting about proceeding on indictment, now we're getting into the weeds a little bit of criminal law. Let me just say that the indictable offenses are the more serious way of proceeding. So animal cruelty is a hybrid offense, which means you can charge it indictably or on summary conviction. Summary conviction has a lower penalty, um, currently a maximum of, it's 18 months, I believe, for animals. Is that right, Camille? Uh, I think it's, is it two years now? I'm pretty sure it went up to... I thought it was... I thought it was 18. It hasn't gone up two years yet. That bill hasn't passed. So it's 18 months. The two-year bill has not passed. So I believe it's 18 months. And um, the the maximum for indictable offense is five years. Now, let me just say, Camille, I have seen animal cruelty offenses uh, prosecuted on indictment. But usually the reason why that's done is because there's a six-month limitation period for prosecuting um, by summary conviction. So I believe, just to call one out, that if we really want to go back in time to who I refer to as the most notorious animal abuser in Canadian history, um, I don't even remember his name, but the guy who killed all the sled dogs in BC. In Whistler, that's right. Yeah, right after the BC Olympics, which caused a huge stir, that had to be prosecuted on indictment. And I'm sure it was. And the reason for that was because it took so long to find out about the deaths, right? It wasn't something that they found out about. So because of the six-month limitation period, they couldn't prosecute summarily. So they had to prosecute on indictment. Now, they might have done so anyway in that case. But what's really important about this one here is that this was a case where there was no limitations period problem. This was a case where the prosecutor decided, you know what? This case is so serious. We're going to we're going to prosecute on indictment and kudos to the prosecutor, because frankly, that's the right decision. Yeah, it's it's a pretty groundbreaking case for quite a few reasons. And just to discuss what was apparently the issue. So it, it seems to me from uh, from the coverage and what we've read and what we know that a visitor to the zoo was so disturbed by the conditions that they witnessed that they actually called the Montreal SPCA back last August. The Montreal SPCA did an inspection. They attended. They found apparently four dead animals. Two of them were tigers. Um, they found llamas. I think they actually seized two llamas last year, Peter, who were in um, a, a bad state. And yesterday, when they rescued all these animals from the zoo, so they actually removed about 100 animals with the assistance of Humane Society International Canada, which is finding homes for them in sanctuaries. Uh, the press release stated that many of those animals were clearly in distress. They didn't have adequate food or water. Many of them were showing signs of psychological disturbance, which is extremely common at zoos. You see animals pacing back and forth, performing stereotypic repetitive behaviors over and over again, which indicates that they're in mental distress. Yeah, it's 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 deeply troubling behavior. And we've we've talked about the situation with exotic animals before and bemoaned the fact that these let me just say so-called zoos. Now, this is getting tricky, Camille, and I just want to be careful here so that no one misunderstands me. I I am not here. We I, I am, to be quite frank, I'm anti-zoo generally across the board. But let's just say that even I recognize that there are differences in degree between, say, the Toronto Zoo and the St. Edward Zoo. Is that is that a is that a distinction that's worth making? I think that's fair. I would say that there are no good zoos, but there are zoos that are less terrible than others. <laughs> There are more terrible zoos. And I know because in my own province, we recently shut down this place called Gazoo. That was just a freaking chamber.
chamber of horrors. And like, it was really, it was badly run. It was badly spaced for the animals. Like everything about it was terrible, as opposed to say the Edmonton Zoo, where there are lots of terrible things happening. Is that a fair way of distinguishing between different zoos? I think that's appropriate. <laughs> it's like the difference between everything is terrible and there are terrible things happening. And I'm pretty sure that the St. Edward Zoo, you know, falls into that category. The St. Edward Zoo is the kind of place where like, you know, the Toronto Zoo people would be like, please don't call them a zoo. They are a collection of animals. Like they would be trying to distinguish. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, definitely. So I think there is that, there is a little bit of that distinction. I mean, these, but, but that's my point that I want to get to this thing we've talked about with exotic animals is that in the absence of a, a clear federal or provincial law that governs the keeping of exotic animals, which is as we discussed, I believe, on a past episode, Camille, we're left with a situation where anybody can collect some animals and call themselves a zoo. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Yeah, and even provinces. Quebec actually does have some rules for zoos, and there's a, some sort of provincial license required, but that's obviously completely inadequate. Um, certainly doesn't create oh, that comprehensive me, I know, regime. We have, we have rules, too, in Alberta. And those rules continue to allow gazoo to exist for year after year. Like the rules were not that hard to comply with. Let's put it that way. The only thing I would say is the rules do make it harder to start up a new zoo. That is true. They do make it harder to do that. But if you were grandfathered in like some of the others were, then you can continue along uh, without too much impediment from the provincial government. Well, this is a very exciting case on a number of levels, and we look forward to um, following it. Camille, I, I noticed... Um, What's an interesting aspect of this case, and, and it's a legal dimension, so I, I like, as you know, it's technically an animal law podcast, so I like to talk about the legal dimensions, is that, you know, a lot of these animals were seized immediately from the zoo, and they were dispersed to sanctuaries um, across the country. I will say that if you read the CBC News report on this, it makes it sound like those animals have been saved, rescued, and sent to sanctuaries permanently. And you and I both know, Camille, that that is not the case. No, the the whole issue of seizing animals who have been abused or used in the commission of offense is it's kind of a tricky, messy area of the criminal law. It's The criminal code was never really designed for that purpose, and so it's not very clear. There's no really obvious obvious or helpful way to to use the seizure provisions to protect animals. So what organizations like the Montreal SPCA are left with is, is trying to sort of fit this situation into other uh, provisions of the criminal code. Yeah, it's very messy. Essentially, the way it works is when you seize things from a person who is suspected of a crime, you're generally seizing those things as evidence. And that's what the animals are. In most cases, when you have a cruelty case, you're, you're, you, you seize them as evidence. Now, let me just say, it, under the provincial laws, because the, the federal laws say nothing about this. And by the way, let me insert a little note to go back to what Anthony Housefather was saying about how terrible our animal cruelty laws are, because they make no provision for seizures of animals that are in distress. But, but leaving that aside, the, the criminal, the, the provincial laws do have some ability to seize animals because they're in distress. But at the end of the day, when you charge criminally, there's a lot of controversy about whether or not those animals at some point have to be returned to the owner. And especially if the owner is somehow acquitted um, of the charges, there's you have no right to hold those animals. And that, to me, is a very clear deficiency in the criminal code. And it's something that, you know, really needs rectification one way or another. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, I do hope when this magical day happens, Peter, and the government starts reviewing the criminal code and coming up with amendments, I hope this is going to be on the table because it's hugely important. What a day it is, Camille. And by the way, call your MP and ask them to make... No, I didn't say that. Thank you. Have, Thank you, Peter. Glad I'm going to have horse hooves over my voice, which can never happen, Camille. It can't happen. Not for that. <laughs> All right. All right, Peter, we have another okay, zoo story. Oh my God, more zoo stories. Yes. Oh, surprise. Zoos are in the news for bad things. I'm not surprised at all. We're back to the Cherrybrook Zoo, which we mentioned a few weeks ago in the podcast. They had uh, been in trouble with the New Brunswick SPCA there. They're located in New Brunswick. And the SPCA there had recommended charges against the zoo for apparently the inappropriate euthanasia, and I, I use that term in air quotes, of guinea pigs. We're not exactly sure what happened, how they killed the guinea pigs, but the New Brunswick SPCA obviously thought it was wrong. They... Uh, recommended charges, but the Crown decided not to lay them ultimately, which is disappointing. And now, Peter, we're seeing the news that CASA has cleared the Cherrybrook Zoo of any wrongdoing. And CASA is Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums, which is an industry self-regulatory body that primarily looks out for the interests of the zoo industry. So are you surprised, Peter, that the zoo industry what has cleared relief, itself? What a relief. What a relief. Kaza has come in and said, everything is A-OK. I feel so much better, Camille. That is um, a lot like the pork board clearing, you know, a various a pig farmer of any abuse or distancing themselves from that particular pig farmer. We've seen this 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 play out before. Um, it is a real problem when you have a lack of independence and, you know, you don't have you don't have really any way to 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 regulate the particular industry so you're left to these these industry created bodies that essentially clear themselves of wrongdoing it's a it's a wonderful time to be alive yeah <laughs> wonderful time to be alive uh, no it, it happens it's, in every industry farming zoos aquariums all of them so disappointing for sure but certainly not surprising not surprising Okay, um, I was very interested in this case, and uh, I want to talk about it um, a little bit because it's a it's it's a callback to a past episode on uh, dog pet custody. Um, if you remember, going way back, we talked about the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador case of Baker versus Hermina, which I'm very excited about because I just inserted it in, into my Animals in the Law course materials for 2018, and um, this is a case in Maine. Now, what's interesting about this case, Camille? is that Maine actually, unlike Newfoundland, has a pet custody law. So they actually believe that it's important enough to resolve these. But the issue in this particular case, which I believe went up to the Supreme Court of Maine, is the fact that the two parties were not married, I believe, or in a domestic relationship. Does that sound about right? Oh, okay. I didn't actually appreciate that from reading the article, but you probably read it more closely than I did. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the papers for, for the dog, her name is Honey, uh, who's in dispute here, were signed by the male partner in this relationship. And um, the woman mm -hmm. had done most of the caring for the dog, apparently, throughout the relationship. And he eventually moved out or was kicked out. And she retained custody of the dog for a period of time. And he eventually took the case to court to try to get the dog back. And the, the judges basically just said, you know, look, the dog's in his name. That's it. 
Yeah, this was an ex-girlfriend, right? So it's not a married couple. And under Maine law, the judge can order married couples to share a dog. And she wanted visitation rights to the dog, right? Because she had established a lengthy relationship with the dog. And the question was whether she could apply under the, um, under the legislation or under the common law to obtain an order. And, you know, let me state, start by saying, good for Maine you know, to have this rule to begin with, it would preclude judges like the Canadian judges who keep saying, we're not these, these, sorry, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and doing a terrible impression of a judge. I, I feel like <laughs> I have to sound more authoritative, but it's like, we're not, we're not going to get into these, these petty disputes about dogs. It's not, it, it demeans the dignity of the court and we shouldn't do it. That's, that's literally the attitude of Canadian judges in case after case. And, and we talked about, you know, in, in that wonderful case, Baker versus Hermino, we call it wonderful because there was a dissent. There was a dissenting judge who actually said, no, you know what? These things are important and we should actually regulate them. They matter to people. What an idea, right? What a crazy idea. They matter to people, so the courts should deal with them. Yeah, As imagine. opposed to the courts telling us, we're not going to deal with them because they're not significant enough. Sorry, let me do that again. They're not significant enough to warrant our attention and time because we're so busy being judges. By the way, this is this is going to do wonders for my getting appointed to the bench one day, Camille. When, oh, yeah. When, when my, my imitations. Let me just stress, I was not imitating. That was a composite of all the judges who've ruled in these areas. That was no particular judge I was imitating. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's amazing, actually. People pay taxes. We have this public court system for our use, for the use of the people. And judges often say that it's just a waste of time for the court to deal with, with pet issues, which I think is just absurd. Yeah. So anyway, it's, it's, I, I'm looking forward to seeing this because I, 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 from what I'm, I mean, let me just say that reading the, the reports in the, in the news, I'm, I'm not often on the Bangor Daily News. I have to admit, Camille, but when I am online, you get the sense that it didn't go that well for the ex-girlfriend trying to get custody in the Supreme Court. But, but I certainly look forward to seeing what they have to say because it'll be interesting to, to get, you know, a sense of a court's approach in a situation where there is legislation and whether or not they're willing to expand the situations in which these sorts of visitation or custody can be considered. So well, very interesting. We'll make sure to bring an update when there's a ruling in the case. Now we're going further afield. We're going out to Australia. I tell you, it's been busy. And I want to talk about the Australian law for uh, two reasons. So first of all, it is another situation. This is the Australian Capital Territory. And for those of you um, not familiar with Australia, Australia is a federal system um, like ours. So they have a bunch of states and they also have a capital territory that essentially um, really encompasses the capital Canberra as a separate state, more or less. Um, and the Australian Capital Territory has its own animal welfare laws, and they are doing some major, major amendments to their animal welfare laws. I want to focus on two of them. And the first of those is following the lead of some other countries to recognize that animals create crazy idea, Camille, are sentient beings. Oh, imagine that. Imagine that. What a novel thing. That's pretty cool, though. So they're putting this forward. And I understand there's some other important provisions too, Peter. Yeah, there are. And, and let me just say about the sentience very quickly that one of the things that's so cool is that the idea is that recognizing that animals are sentient will expand um, very clearly the types of suffering that courts are able to consider. And, and, and I believe the bill references explicitly the idea of psychological suffering, which let me just say is an idea that's not completely settled here in Canada. There are, there are a couple of decisions here and there that have recognized that animal psychological suffering can be considered as a type of 
of suffering that we will punish, but there are just as many that say it isn't. And, you know, so it's, it's a very debated issue. So recognizing that animals are sentient beings with complex mental abilities really, really gets to the point of psychological suffering. So I think that's important on its own, but I have to be honest, my favorite part of the bill is, is the bill that recognizes the ability to rescue animals. I'm not sure. I haven't looked at the wording of the bill, but all the descriptions in the newspapers talk about obviously overheated dogs in the back seats of cars. Yeah, that's an obvious situation, one that I, I think you wouldn't find much disagreement in the public, that uh, people should be able to break windows in cars and do whatever they need to do to get a dog out of there. But interesting question to, to think about whether this could be extended to situations where animals are used for industrial purposes, for profit-driven uh, uses, and face suffering. Does it extend to let people rescue them there, too? I don't know. I'd obviously need to look at the text of the bill um, before before commenting. I mean, but but that's an interesting idea. Um, we have talked on many occasions, and some people have raised the idea in the courts that there is some defense of public necessity or some defense of public good, um, mostly has not been recognized, let me say, by the courts, that allows you to save animals. And it's a very interesting idea. In fact, we could arguably discuss it at length on a future show as its own topic, Camille, this idea of you know, justifying acts of people who are trying to save animals and why that's so difficult in Canadian criminal law, because it really is. So I, I give kudos to the ACT for being willing to recognize that. And let me just say, even if it's restricted to saving the animal in the car, it's, it's a really nice idea to ensure that people cannot be prosecuted or sued when they're saving the life of an animal whose life is at risk. Really important move. So kudos to the ACT for this. All right. All right. And we've left. Have we left the best for last, Camille? Yeah, I think we have. I don't know. This, this story is pretty exciting, and I hope listeners are going to agree, but I've been kind of preoccupied with it for the last couple of days. So it's a case of a man named Adam Knopf. Adam is a firefighter. He happens to be vegan. He's been vegan for over 20 years, and he uh, doesn't eat animal products because he doesn't think it's the right thing to do. Uh, Peter, Adam is suing his employer, which is the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry in Ontario because they sent him out to British Columbia a couple summers ago to fight fires in uh, Williams Lake, BC. Probably you guys remember this. It was a really, really terrible situation. They evacuated tens of thousands of people from this area, and they sent in forest firefighters to try to rescue people's homes and their valuables. And Adam was on that team. He got there. He was working 16-hour days. But the tragic thing, Peter, is that the his employer just wasn't feeding him food that he could eat. So he'd show up in the lunch lineup after working all morning, and there'd be a sandwich with meat in it or a sandwich with cheese in it. And he'd say, guys, where's the vegan option? And sometimes there just wouldn't be any. Sometimes they would serve him like the sides of various dishes, like he might get some potatoes and a salad, uh, but never really a source of protein. So, Peter, this went on for about 10 days. He just wasn't getting adequate nutrition. And when he finally asserted his rights and said, look, you guys have to feed me, this isn't right, they actually retaliated against him and sent him home. So all that to say, this has now turned into a claim before the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, where Adam is seeking something novel. He's seeking recognition for his beliefs as an ethical vegan under the protections in the Human Rights Code in Ontario for a person's creed. So he's claiming that ethical veganism is his creed. And this is a pretty cool and novel case. 
Yeah, it's cool on a number of levels. I mean, I can't uh, speak for for him and what he plans to do, but um, I, you know that we have talked when we talk in private about lawsuits we'd like to see brought or actions that we'd like to see. I am very big on the the vegan bandwagon, and let me just say less so than I was 15 years ago because I do think in most cases. This this may be an issue that eventually ages out of existence, if that makes any sense, Camille, because I do think that I do think that being a vegan today, even in a professional discipline, and, and that's not to knock what this guy went through. I'm just saying, you know, when I first started this out and I was a vegan in the university, I nobody would accommodate me ever. I would essentially always be eating around the margins. It was always terrible. And I was just supposed to suck it up. That doesn't happen anymore. There's definitely much more awareness of I hate to say it, Camille, vegan and gluten free because of course, that's the other big one. So there has been more awareness of this. But but nonetheless, I've been interested in this for a long time. And I'm interested both in terms of the human rights complaints. But frankly, I'm also just as interested as to what to do if the Human Rights Tribunal and comes back and says, well, this is not a creed. Because it seems to me that there are constitutional arguments to be considered as to whether or not the Human Rights Act is under-inclusive uh, in terms of the way in which it protects people's rights to these sorts of ethical choices. So yeah. it's an interesting case either way. And I guess we could talk about that other part, you know, after you comment on what I just said. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, it, it's a pretty novel case. So um, just to follow up on some of the issues you touched on. So this idea of creed, and anyone who wants to learn more about that, they can scroll back in our episodes list. I'm just finding it here. Episode 13, back in July of last year, we talked about discrimination against vegans in some detail with guest host Samantha Compa, who's an Ontario human rights lawyer, who was actually Adam's former lawyer, but has moved on to a new position since then. And we talk about the fact that the word creed used to be referred to exclusively meaning religion. So a creed was a person's religion, but it's evolved. And some people question whether it was ever meant to mean just religion because the word creed itself, well, it's, it's not the word religion, right? It seems to suggest something more. So the Human Rights Commission of Ontario has, has said in the last few years that they believe that creeds should include ethical belief systems that are secular in nature and not rooted in traditional organized religion. So we think that there's pretty good support for this institutionally already and that it would be a logical extension because when you think about it, people in the workplace, hospitals, schools, prisons, and more, they already have the right to, you know, kosher food, for instance, or halal food if they have a religious belief. So why would you not extend that to people who have ethical beliefs that uh, require certain dietary provisions? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I've always thought that was the case. There are a couple of cases that support that. It's the, 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 the law on this is pretty, is pretty sparse, to be perfectly frank. There's not a lot of cases discussing this, but, uh, but there, there have been a few positive outcomes for people in analogous sorts of situations. Yeah, for sure. So, for instance, Falun Gong. Falun Gong is a spiritual practice, but its, its adherents wouldn't describe it as a religion. But the Human Rights Tribunal has recognized spiritual or Falun Gong as a, as a creed. Uh, they've recognized other sort of belief systems, um, but, you know, there's a few criteria that have to be met. So it's going to be one of those situations where the court has to look at it or the tribunal has to look at the beliefs of ethical vegans and decide if they meet those criteria. And I can tell everyone right now that animal justice is going to be seeking to intervene in this case. We've been working on this issue for many, many years, and we're instrumental in getting that policy passed that creed should mean more than just religion. So this is a, an important case for us, and we'll stay on top of it and bring you news as it comes. 
I'm just going to say that if I ever get into one of these situations, Camille, I'm just going to tell everybody I'm a Janist just so that I can get my vegan food <laughs> delivered to me without having to go to court. Yeah, I know. I mean, you course, could easily do that. Just say that you're Jane or yeah, Hare Krishna. Or, or a Buddhist. Like, it's so ridiculous, right? You just have to, like, you know, especially because... Uh, as far as I'm concerned, most of Jainism as far, I mean, there are religious aspects, but not, they're not in the traditional sense of religion. They're, they're just, you know, they're an organized faith that believes, uh, in, 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 in compassion and, uh, and, and, and lack of harm to all living beings. So, I mean, they're essentially, <laughs> they're the first vegans in a sense. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's going to be an interesting one to watch for sure. The Ministry of Natural Resources, which is Adam's employer, has actually filed their response. He's fighting Peter. back. Yeah, they're fighting yeah, back. They're, they're fighting saying back that hard. his veganism is a lifestyle choice and doesn't rise to the level of creed. So it's actually now, ridiculous. Now, first of all, let me just say, let me say, Camille, they're also challenging the facts, right? So there, there's both a factual and a legal defense, as I understand it. And what I mean by that, again, for the non-lawyers, is I think they're factually contesting his claims about the reasons he was fired and the reasons he was, sorry, the reasons he was sent home and, and some of the conduct that took place. Does that sound about right? Yeah, they're saying basically that it wasn't just him that wasn't receiving adequate food, that the whole situation was a big mess. And no one was getting adequate food, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think that really changes things because the meat eaters were still able to eat and Adam wasn't. Right. And then, of course, there's the legal defense, which is saying, well, veganism is not a creed. So even if we did treat you badly, uh, you have no legal recourse to do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. So we'll stay on top of the story. There's going to be lots more to come, no doubt. Adam has launched a GoFundMe page to help with the expenses in this case. He does have great pro bono counsel, but hiring experts and getting their testimony and travel costs and other fees does get expensive. So if you want to contribute, you can check out uh, the show notes for the link. Fantastic. Well, best of luck to uh, this particular case. I mean, I think it's important. I mean, you know, obviously, I don't know the facts one way or the other, but assuming it's a, it's the the claim is based on bona fide facts, it's it's a it's a troublesome instance, and I I do think it would be useful to have this issue of veganism as a creed very clearly indicated. And as I said earlier, I I I think that the the interesting sequel potentially to this, and and perhaps we can draw some parallels, Camille. I, I'm not sure if you. Um, Remember, because this is prior to your days in law school. This is when I was a law school baby. I remember the issue of sexual orientation in the Human Rights Act uh, being raised as a legitimate ground of complaint. And I also remember that there were human rights uh, um, tribunal cases saying, no, we can't defend against sexual orientation discrimination because it's not listed right? It's not listed um, in the legislation. And what happened was a couple of people brought litigation to challenge that legislation, saying that the fact that sexual orientation is not listed as a valid ground of discrimination is in and of itself discriminatory, and they managed to have sexual orientation effectively read in to the human rights legislation. Does that ring a bell, Camille? Because I know that's post your law school days. Yeah. Or pre your law school days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's interesting. I didn't actually know that that's how the litigation proceeded, but that's an interesting theory. If you actually look at the Charter of Rights, which applies to all government action across the country, it does protect people's freedom of conscience under Section 2A. And freedom of conscience, Peter, has been interpreted to include beliefs in vegetarianism for ethical reasons. So maybe there's something there. 
That's what I mean. Maybe it's possible to create an under-inclusive category. I mean, it would be a little bit more difficult because of some of the limitations. Now we're getting into really law geekdom. Yeah, sorry of guys. Using, <laughs> of, of, using, of using section 2A as that type of, it usually doesn't work as a, uh-oh, now we're getting into big law geekdom. It doesn't usually work as a sword. It usually works more as a shield. So trying to say that the law doesn't go far enough um, is a pretty big stretch. And I'm not sure... You know, again, we're really getting deep into the law weeds, and my discrimination law is a little bit fuzzy. I don't study equality law on a basis. I'd like somebody to study whether or not vegans could fit into Section 15. I think that would be harder. Does that sound right to you? I, <laughs> sounds... I think so, too. I think it would be more difficult, yeah. but hey, who knows? Now we're going deep in the weeds. This, I, I, Let me just say, we've already touched on Creed. Obviously, I think we'll follow up on some of these topics that we're hitting on today um, with future full topic episodes. Because, I, again, I wasn't part of that uh, discussion. And I, 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 I'm very interested in that issue of freedom of conscience being used to protect vegans' rights to exercise their choices. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool topic. Hot topic. And if you come to the Animal Law Conference in October at Dalhousie that we're hosting, uh, you might hear this come up. Oh my God, the Animal Law Conference. I'm, I'm giddy with excitement. We'll talk more about that a... on the future episode. <laughs> yes. All right, Peter. Is it time for everyone's favorite segment? Everybody's favorite part of the show, Camille. It is time for Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right, our hero comes to us this episode from the West Coast. We are honoring Victoria City Councilor Ben Isaac, I think, for proposing a phase out of horse-drawn carriages in Victoria. And listeners may know that this has been a very hot and contentious topic in Victoria for many, many years. And this is the first time we've ever seen legislative progress on it. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It. I. I did a gander on Twitter or Facebook, and like, there are a lot of different views on this. Let's just say that uh, we are honoring Ben Isaac because I think it is important to bring these issues forward. And frankly, I think. I think the case for phasing out horse-drawn carriages is very strong, and I think the case for maintaining them is very weak. And you know, you read some of this stuff in the in the in the. I actually got dug into a little bit in what was going on on Twitter and some of the stuff online, and it's it's very interesting. The people defending it keep saying, "Well, we're trying to compromise and make it better for the horses," and. I'm sort of like thinking, well, you're, you're missing the point, but that's, that's, there are different views on this. And I think it's courageous of Ben Isaac to be bringing this forward. Cause frankly, I think it's an issue that's past time. To me, this is one of the easier animal law issues to deal with. Uh, we're not dealing with people's culinary preferences, which is really where the heart of, uh, uh, these animal law issues lie. We're trying to get rid of use of animals in entertainment effectively. These horses who are providing some quaint relic of Victoria's past history. Isn't that what they're doing, Camille? Yeah, pretty much. They've got various justifications for it, and most of them have a historical basis for it. But the fact of the matter is, we're really just talking about a handful of carriages. We're talking about uh, a handful of tourists who pay big bucks to go on them. It's not like this is a significant industry for the city. It's not like it's something that residents enjoy every single day. It's uh, something that needs to go by the wayside. We're talking about the use of animals and entertainment here, which is just increasingly becoming uh, unfair fashionable, not okay anymore, and certainly not socially acceptable. So I think it's a natural step. And uh, Mr. Isaac's motion apparently proposes replacing the horse carriages with some sort of electric vehicles. 
Yeah, and let me just say, like, I, I think the issue is important for two reasons. One is the the horses themselves, because there's a fair bit of evidence to suggest it's it's not good for the horses. It's it's a really it's a situation in which the horses are in traffic. They they are not in a a, a a traditional position. Now I'm talking about the tradition of where horses are. But I also think it's important symbolically. Essentially, the more that's why I think the entertainment issues are so important. Let me be clear: not because they're so critical to the numbers of animals affected because obviously as we all know the real issues for animal welfare and animal rights are in the farming sector not in the entertainment sector but my feeling has always been and I'm interested to hear your position on this Camille is that if we can't win these types of issues it's really hard to make progress because symbolically the idea is again that we can use these animals in the way we see fit because that's the way we like it we make a business traditionally we do this etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah that's exactly chipping away at the margins is an important strategy for the animal rights movement uh, going after those practices that affect relatively few animals and um, are not done for reasons that are as significant to humans and we can think about cat declawing or dog tail docking or ear cropping in a similar category so, but of course, Peter, there's, uh, there's been a, a lot of oh, sorry. yeah, I'm there's jumping. been a lot of pushback from the horse carriage industry. You mentioned Twitter a minute ago, and I've had a few yeah. run-ins with those folks on Twitter too. They they're pretty nasty, and so I think I've muted or blocked most of them, so I don't hear their complaints anymore. But the carriage right. industry is already threatening a lawsuit. The tour operators want to sue the city of Victoria if the ban proceeds. And I just find that, frankly, I mean, it's maddening, it's frustrating, but it's also kind of a hilarious to me because... Well, I, I look forward to seeing what that lawsuit looks like. I know, like, what are they going to sue on? You you don't have the right to do this? Well, they do. Uh, they sort of hinted in the news article, which we'll share in the show notes, that maybe there was some defamation or some untrue Def things being defamation. said. It's like, let me, what? Let me break it to you. First of all, let me break it to you. I'm, I, I am not a municipal law expert, Camille, but I would warrant, I would, if, if, if I, I'm, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that comments made in municipal proceedings should, should be immune from defamation in the same way. And I could be wrong in that. I'm not a municipal law expert, but the same way that provincial governments and federal governments discussing, like I can go into the house of commons and say anything I want about anybody. Like the whole point is you can't be sued for defamation because you are, you are attempting to govern. You're raising issues of public importance. You can't be sued for that. Yeah, yeah. I, who knows what the basis is of their potential lawsuit, but frankly, I welcome it. And I'm shocked that they haven't figured out yet that lawsuits like this are always bad for Defamation. their industries. They're great yeah. for us. They're great for animal advocates. Yeah. I mean, just look at the Vancouver Aquarium issue. Oh, crap. We didn't even talk about that. But the Vancouver Aquarium is now suing uh, the city of Vancouver for damages related to the ban on cetaceans. First, they were trying to challenge the bylaw. That's still going on. But now they're suing. I think they filed the suit because of a limitations period that was coming up this week. But they're suing over damages, too, for the, the cetacean ban. And frankly, those lawsuits have not been beneficial for the Vancouver Aquarium. They've kept the issue of cetaceans in captivity in the news, just in the same way that the horse carriage industry's lawsuit, if they ever file it, is going to get people talking more and more about the cruelty that these horses endure. So I welcome it. Well, that's true. Where I think both the Vancouver and Aquarium and the horse carriage people may have a more legitimate complaint is not in defamation or these sorts of ideas. They, they may have legitimate rights in contract, and that's a different issue. Like, if I buy a horse license, you know, 
and I've paid considerable amounts of money and invested considerable amounts of money on the expectation that I will be allowed to do this for the course of that license, I can understand why there might have to be some buybacks. We've talked about this on past episodes. It seems to me very logical. In fact, that's what happened in Montreal. There had to be, like, if the city wants to get rid of this, there's no question that they're going to have to pay out some money. That's that's only fair. I, 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 I have no sympathy for horse carriage owners generally in terms of, but, but as a business owner, Owner, I think they are entitled to make decisions that are based on expectation. Because just for an example, Camille, if you're a horse carriage owner and you have bought a horse carriage itself, like an expensive item on, say, a 20-year depreciation table based on the expectation of a city license that was expected until the city decided to change its mind, I do think you can raise some issues in contract and say, well, you've got to pay me out for that license. Something along those lines. Yeah, sure. And, you know, some sort of reasonable compensation. I don't mind at all, just so long as we get the animals out of that abusive situation. Correct. We've talked about that before. Transitional solutions. To, and frankly, to be perfectly honest, it's a drop in the bucket. I mean, over time, even if it's expensive at the moment, we've, we've, we've eliminated a situation. This is exactly what happened in Montreal. They paid them out and they, they got rid of all the carriage owners. And my guess is if Victoria goes forward, that's exactly what's going to happen there. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this one. And our zero. <laughs> I think this is the first oh, we time. Have a zero. You've chosen the zero today, Camille. I know it because it's a political zero. So Camille has chosen. I, I mean, of all the things to pick him for, it's Doug Ford. Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario, your beloved premier, Camille is the zero and frankly you could choose him as the zero for any number of reasons and let me just can i can i just do that for one second for those of you who are not following our friend over at the dock at michael spratt i must say i am enjoying very much although in a very sad way uh, michael spratt's ongoing letters to the premier he sends him a letter every day asking him when the premier will fulfill his commitment to honor everyone who needs legal aid in the province despite cutting legal aid dramatically in the budget. So I, I encourage you to go over and look at Michael Spratt's Twitter feed every day because he sends another new letter and each letter is more humorous than the last. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, you're right. Doug Ford has done a number of things that are not very popular lately with the legal community or progressive people or people who rely on healthcare services, but we're giving him a zero for a particular announcement that the province is going to give $100,000 to Something called Hats for Hides, a Peterborough-based company, uh, which runs this program that gives hunters free hats in exchange for animal skins on a first-come, first-served wow. basis. Essentially, Peter, hunters bring in unspoiled, flesh-free moose and deer hides to any of nearly 50 depots across Ontario. And if the hide is considered to be of, quote, good quality, the hunter can get up to two orange hats and a successful big game hunter crest for their efforts. So we've got the province cutting healthcare, cutting all these things that are important to people, cutting legal aid and giving money to the hunting industry. And that deserves a big fat zero. I have so many questions, Camille. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what's with the hats? That's the guy. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious not only about the policy, but about the idea that what every hunter needs is a, an orange hat. Like, wh who came up with that idea? I I mean, hunters wear orange hats, Peter, because they often shoot each other in the woods and they're trying not to get shot, I guess. <laughs> right. So, so the hat is good then. Uh, okay, I, mean, I, I guess, take it back. I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's 
I, I just don't know why the public is paying for these hats. It makes no uh, sense I to me. I don't know about you. Like, again, but aside from the $100,000, let's assume for the moment that I was the hunter and I'd, you know, gotten this hide. I'm like, am I going to keep the hide or, like, drive across to some depot so I can exchange it for a hat? I, <laughs> like, it's pretty, pretty exciting. <laughs> it doesn't seem like the most, ex uh, like, exciting prize to me, but I don't really like, pretend frankly, to understand frankly, the psychology the hunter, of hunters. No, me neither. But but if I were the hunter, I'd rather they just gave me the money that they've spent on these hats. So I'm criticizing the policy both on why are you rewarding this and two, why a hat? Like that's the part that I find interesting. But maybe one of our listeners will correct me and say, no, Peter, the, the hat thing really does make sense. I don't know. Yeah, we'll we'll wait to hear from from some hunters, maybe. We'll wait. Anyway, we will. Um, I, I think that is a good place to end it on our heroes and zeros. And let me just say, as I did at the beginning of the show, you know, this was a full news item show and I am looking for the appropriate animal designated or non animal designated moniker so that in future episodes, when we do a news related show, we have a cool title for it, Camille, because I think that's essential going forward. All right. Send us your suggestions. All right. Well, until then, this has been a wonderful episode of Pawn Order. I've enjoyed it very much going through the news of the day. Always good to catch up with you, Camille. And I guess we'll uh, leave it there. Until next time. Until next time. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pawn Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order.